Amen. We are so glad to see you today and so glad to be together again. Uh, this morning we have a, a guest who's been here before with his lovely wife. He came to Christ way back in 1971 and he's the founder of CRC. And uh, he started way back when he was still, uh, he did this uh, type of evangelistic ministry in high school and university, impacted thousands of the lives of students. Since 1978, he has been the senior minister of Christian Family Center in Adelaide in South Australia which uh, uh, Gege and I, my wife and I, had the privilege to be with them. And this church, Bazarana, has grown into a very large and influential local church. And there are many daughter churches that have been planted, many outreaches that have been established. He has a passion of world evangelism through proclaiming the good news about Jesus Christ. Talks about the purposeful church planting, excellent ministry training, constantly equipping leaders, empowering and releasing Christian leaders. I was so privileged to go and speak actually at the umbrella body called the CRC Churches, which he leads. And he has been leading this uh, denominational family between 1988 and 1997. And in Australia, he has been leading it since 2002. But this is a worldwide body of churches from all around the world that have come under this umbrella and uh, he, I had the privilege to be invited to go and speak there. You know, when you have people who only, not only lead a church from a local standpoint, but they are church planters and they, they, they also oversee churches from around the world and they are well-traveled and involved in the ministry of the Lord, really uh, internationally, if you would, it's a great blessing. Amen. Amen. And so we're so glad today because uh, he's been in ministry for 40 years him and his wife as well have been married for 40 years. Actually, they just came back from Cape Town where they had a few days. And uh, I'm so glad that they could come here because they, they'll be going down to Swaziland. Apostle Jethro has invited them to go to Swaziland. So they gave me a call to say, look, we'll be in Johannesburg over the weekend. Before we go to Swaziland, can we come do something for you? I said, of course, yes. I'm in holiday mode. I don't want to be preaching at all. I want to be receiving. And so, Vazalana, I really am so grateful because we are with them as well on the Healing Jesus campaign board with Bishop Dark Heward Mills. And these are senior leaders in the ministry, you know. One of the things I tell young ministers is that you are very safe to locate yourself among people who have been there before you because they'll help you to stay on the straight and narrow. I'm going to invite both of them to come, uh, Pastor Bill and Sister Kathy, Vasilakis, if they could come, can you give them a big, warm Grace Bible Church welcome? And I'm going to ask, come on, Bazalana, that's not a big, 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 big hand. We love you so much, and we, we thank you for being here, and, uh, and, and thank you for the relationship. Thank you so much for what God is doing through your lives, and uh, I hope you had rest in Cape Town. They were in Cape Town, they had good weather for one day, uh, bad, not, not so good weather for one day, but three other days, great weather. I told them that you carry a strong anointing. Cape Town, the weather is never good, but the weather was good for them. I'm going to ask this Kathy just to say hello to you all, Vasalan, okay? Can you give them another warm welcome as well? So, so. Thank, thank you so much for your warm greeting. 
Um, this is our third trip here and we're just so blessed. I feel so at home here. Um, the, the, the church culture is the same as ours in Australia, except that we don't move like you do. And um, I really like it that I can get my mojo on and, and dance with you here because back home I'm like this. <laughs> uh, I wish we could import you to Australia with your beautiful music. But we, we pick up the spirit of the church, which is the same because Jesus rules it. And I'm just so thankful that you are um, talking about gratitude this month. Um, I'm actually preaching on that in four weeks' time in our church because it's our Thanksgiving month as well. And um, I just want to leave with you something. I just felt God tell me to tell you, don't come with a fist like this of anger, bitterness, resentment. You're in a church where you learn the tools to let that go and to open your life. You know, Bill's going to talk a little bit about my story and I was like this. Bad background, broken family, violence, abuse and Jesus opened me and he did it by me being grateful, by me, by me being saying, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for what you've given me. Not what I don't have, but what I have in you. Thank you so much, Jesus. Let Jesus change your life today. Bless you. Good morning. It is a privilege and a joy to minister God's word to you and to uh, bring you greetings from Adelaide, South Australia. And uh, Adelaide is on the same latitude as uh, Cape Town. So we have exactly the same weather. Uh, so we were at home there, but we weren't in church. But we are really at home now here at Grace Bible Church with you. So um, it was uh, a privilege to have Bishop Moser come and speak at our national conference uh, a couple of years ago and then into our own local church, Melbourne and then Adelaide. And so uh, it's a joy to be able to reciprocate and to impart something to you this morning. Um, as um, Bishop said, Kathy and I have been uh, leading the Christian Family Centre, our church, for 40 years. Hey. But I was only 14 when they appointed me. <laughs> Add another 10 years. Um, so it's been a, I love church. Um, I'm not sick of church. I've only ever been in two churches all my life. The church I got saved in and was trained and grew up in, the church that, that was the first church of our denominational family, um, our movement's been in existence for nearly 75 years. It started in 1945 in Adelaide and uh, by one man. He was my pastor. And now we have around 1,000 churches across the world that are CRC churches. And um, so we are a church planting movement. We are a mission-focused organization. And so... Uh, 
So I was in that one church for seven years. That's where I met Kathy. And uh, we went to Bible college together as children, really. She was 17, I was 19. Went to Bible college together. We went to university. And then in 1978, um, a little church, the smallest in our denomination, asked me to become their pastor. And I was a high school teacher as well, evangelizing in schools and universities. And so I've been there ever since. And by the grace of God, it's become a significant church where we are planting churches and and uh, doing missions across the world. So, but I love it. And so uh, I'm not tired of it yet. I'm, uh, I'm still excited about ministering the word and building up leaders and it's thrilling. You see, your month is a, a month of gratitude and it's a great theme. In fact, we're doing it in January. So you see, we're kindred spirits. So we're doing a theme of gratitude in January, the whole of January, gratitude for 2018 and what we're looking for God to do in 2019. But you should be grateful because Jesus has raised up Grace Bible Church. And you should be grateful that Grace Bible Church is a New Testament church. It is not a church created by a man with his own philosophy and his own ideas. It's created by Jesus Christ through a God called man that fits the pattern of the New Testament. Really? So be grateful that this is a New Testament church. Now I travel the world and I can tell you, I have seen some churches and I go, oh, Does it look like the Book of Acts church? No. And created in the image and the philosophy of a man or a woman with some strange ideas and notions. You have no churches like that in Africa, do you? South Africa? No, no, no. Hey, you belong to a New Testament church and uh, the grace of God is upon you. And I love your name, Grace. Bible church. You see, a New Testament church, you should be very thankful and grateful that uh, uh, your church is biblically grounded. That's the very first thing. I've seen churches that are not biblically grounded, and uh, this church is biblically grounded. Uh, Our own local church is very biblically grounded. And to me, you are declaring, and and I watch Uh, bishops' messages from time to time and and keep an eye on what's happening here as I do with other movements. And I know that from this pulpit and right across uh, Grace Bible churches that you are declaring the whole counsel of God, the whole counsel of God, not just one pet doctrine that happens to be the favourite of your bishop, but you are being taught the full counsel of God. There are other places where the pastor, the leader, he just has one message, one theme. And they just go for that, go for that, go for that, go for that every week, every week, every week. And you know what? What is truth becomes error because he does not include all other teachings from the scripture. So you need to declare the whole counsel of God and your church is a church that's biblically grounded, that declares the whole counsel of God, and therefore it's a New Testament church, and we're grateful for that. You know, if, 
If you only teach one truth, what happens is error is exaggerated truth. See, error, you think about that. Error is exaggerated truth. Just one truth, but it's not counterbalanced from there, here, there. The whole counsel of God from the whole Old Testament and the whole New Testament. This is why the Apostle Paul says, all scripture is God breathed from Genesis to Revelation. And it's useful, every bit of it is useful. For what? For teaching you, for rebuking you. Oh, we don't like that one. Sometimes I read the Bible and it's like a mirror. Oh, and it's like, as they said in Jesus' day, that's a very hard saying. That's a little bit difficult. That's a little bit inconvenient. Now you're getting in my face, God. See, he rebukes us because he loves us. He tells us off, not because he's cruel, but because he's kind. And he corrects us. Scripture is there to correct us and to train us in righteousness, to understand that we've been declared righteous before God through the grace of Jesus, and that now through the Holy Spirit, we can start living a righteous life, living the right way so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Notice that, thoroughly equipped. You cannot be thoroughly equipped unless you are totally grounded in Scripture. And so, church family, I would encourage you, read the Scripture every day. Plan your reading, okay? Like set yourself, say for the month of, 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 of January, you might go, I'll do Matthew. Or say for the month of February, I might do, say, 30 Psalms. Set yourself. You might have Bible reading plans. We have them in our church. But set yourself and, and get hold of Scripture and read it and meditate upon it and let God speak to you. Let him teach you, rebuke you, correct you, train you, equip you for every good work that he has for you. And so be also careful of, of teachings that come from different preachers that are on the internet. Now, thankfully, there are great preachers on the internet and we can learn a lot from them. But there's also some strange fellows and uh, you gotta be careful. They look good, they communicate well, but what they say is junk. Junk, you think, what the heck is that about? So I'm in the Philippines preaching, <laughs> I'm in the Philippines preaching to about 150 pastors and leaders. I'm training them. I'm in the hotel, so I stick on Christian TV. And here comes this guy. He's got this massive church in Mindanao, down south, maybe half the size. Maybe there were this many people there. And he openly says that he is the Messiah. Hey, he says he's the Messiah. He says, come follow me. And all the people there are going, oh, yes, 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 yes. And I'm, I felt like grabbing my something and throwing it at the TV. I'm saying, what a devil he is. How these poor people are being deceived. And the reason why they get deceived is they don't know the scripture. They don't know the full counsel of God. And so there are weird and wacky teachers out there. 
and a lot of them are on the internet. And so be very wise, be very careful. If you're uncertain about them, then check out your pastors, ask for advice. Is this person legitimate? Is that person okay or not? And so just to make sure that you are being, you're drinking from the right wells. Because some wells have a little bit of poison in them. You see, false teachers are very clever. They're very deceptive. So a false teacher who has heresy, he doesn't just say, well, okay, I'll give you heresy. He puts it in nice meat. See, how do you kill a dog that's got rabies? Say if you're in a village out somewhere and there's a dog that's got rabies and, or there's wild animals that are diseased and you wanna you either shoot them or maybe you bait them. So what do you do? You grab rat poison or strychnine and you just grab it and throw it on the ground and the dogs, the mad dogs, will come and eat the strychnine and die, yes? No, you grab beautiful meat with lots of blood and you grab the strychnine, stick it in the meat, put it down there, and the crazy dog will come up, go, oh, meat, not poison, meat, gob, 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 eats it up and he dies. So false teachers present nice Bible passages, beautiful meat, but inside there's poison because they're not declaring the full counsel of God. And so that's why you've got to be careful. You've got to know your Bible, submit to your pastors and leaders and listen to them and do the Bible studies that they've recommended that you do. So you see a New Testament church, and this is a great New Testament church, and I'm thankful for Grace Bible Church that it is biblically grounded, hallelujah. And you know what? The whole Bible's message, the number one message of the Bible is about Jesus Christ. The whole Old Testament points to him. The whole New Testament, the four gospels, tell us that the eternal son visited what he said and what he did. And then a little bit, it tells us about the cross, but doesn't explain why. Then it takes the book of Acts and all the letters to explain what happened at the cross. Why it was so important, the resurrection, the coming of the spirit, the birth of the church. And so when they write, so therefore the New Testament is the key to understanding the Old Testament. The whole Old Testament points to Jesus. The whole New Testament is about Jesus and explains him. And so you've, you've, you can't get caught up with some people get caught up with, they read something in Daniel, they read something in Ezekiel, they read something somewhere and they get caught up and fixated with Ezekiel's wheels or something and, and you know, the flying saucers and, and, and wheels within wheels and, and trying to interpret what's the meaning of this. Ah, forget all that stuff. It's all about Jesus. If it doesn't bring you to Jesus, don't get caught up with any side doctrines that are, just don't make, make sense. And that's why a, I'm grateful this church and you should be grateful that it's not only biblically grounded, it is Christ-centered. All the messages that come from this pulpit, you can see straight away the preachers and bishop makes a beeline for the cross. Always the cross of Jesus. Because a crossless Christianity is a powerless Christianity. We preach a cross. There is a cross here. It is because he came and visited this planet and died on a cross that we receive his power and grace and forgiveness and salvation. Someone had to die that we would live. Only through the cross can you see the full character of God and understand him. The light of God 
is revealed through a cross. And it's through the cross that we see the love of God. 47 years I've been reflecting on the cross. I've been studying it and think, and I'm just starting to grasp the depth of the love of God for me. How much love did he have for me? That while I was a sinner, not while I was good, while I was a bad boy, Jesus died for me. He died for the ungodly. And only through the cross can you really see and understand the love of God. Only through the cross. The cross is the bridge between earth and heaven. You cannot get to heaven unless you walk the way of the cross, unless you embrace Jesus' cross who died for you and who lives for you. And so a New Testament church is Christ-centered. It focuses upon the cross of Jesus because it was through his death that we find life and through his resurrection and his ascension into heaven that he sends the Holy Spirit to us. And so a church will survive for generations if it remains biblically grounded and if it stays centered on Jesus Christ. I noticed the prayer of your bishop where he prayed and says, Jesus, you'd be lifted up and draw people to yourself. You see, if I lift myself up, why would the Holy Spirit want to support me if it's about me? But if I lift up Jesus and talk about him, the eternal son who created the heavens and the earth, he comes to earth as a bubby, okay? The Christmas story. And then he teaches and, and, and so as, as we see him talking and interacting and teaching, we see what God is like. All our crazy notions of what God is like, our religious views get pushed away because now we look into Jesus' eyes and we hear his voice and we look into his face and say, that's God, that's what God is like. I like that God. A God of my own imagination, no. But I like the God that Jesus reveals. You see, and so, and then half the gospels, you think about it, one half of the four gospels and one of them nearly two thirds center on one week of his life. One of the gospels, half the gospel is about the final day. Most biographies have 500 pages about this person and then it says, and he got sick and died, about two lines and they buried him there. Not the gospels, half the gospel center on the final week, the final hours. What, something amazing happened at the cross. The purpose of God was to come and reveal himself in the person of his son so that we can understand his teachings. But more importantly, he came as a vicarious sacrifice. He died in our place, our substitute, that we might have eternal life and be restored to him. This is the essence of the gospel. And so we must be lifting him up. And, uh, and, and all teachings, I mean, I hear lots of teachings and, and I hear sometimes preachers and they're very good, very good communicators. And they might talk about marriage, say, let's say marriage. And, then, uh, and they, they, they tell you, they read a good book, good psychology, and it's practical, it's good stuff. Now, if you do these 10 things to your wife, she'll be a happy wife. And wife, if you do these 10 things to your husband, he'll be a happy husband. So the key to happy marriage is you each do these things. And I listen and I think, but where is Jesus in this? Who gives the power to be able to change a human heart, to be able to create new habit patterns? So some of the things that they're saying are good, but I can't change myself. 
I need somebody else living in this body of sin to be able to change me. So I say to every couple who gets married, I say, listen, your marriage will be very, very unhappy unless you bring a third party in. And they go, Pastor Bill, are you into polygamy? Said, your marriage will not be happy unless there's a third party in. And you've got to love this person more than you love. And I say, and his name is Jesus Christ. And I said, you've got to love him more and look to him. He will do the changing. And so you can't teach and preach about marriage unless you get to Jesus. You can't teach and preach about giving money and tithing and stewardship unless you talk about Jesus and how much he gives to us. You can't talk about discipleship as a man-made system of somehow become, no, no, we're disciples of Jesus Christ. And he was the obedient one. You think of Jesus. He lines up to get baptized in water. And I have a person in Adelaide who doesn't want to get baptized in water and they're an adult. They say, well, I was done as a baby. I was done as a baby, so why should I be done as an adult? I said, well, I was done as a baby too in the Greek Orthodox Church, and I honour my parents for, and the Greeks do it really, they stick the baby under, Orthodox, I go, three times. Keep them under, because they know the word baptism means not sprinkle or pour, they mean put under. So I was done. I thank my parents, they had faith, but when I became an adult, at 18, I, I chose to get baptised as an adult to obey Jesus. And these people who argue with me, I said, listen, don't argue with me. No, I don't want to argue with you. I said, you want an argument? Go and talk to Jesus. He was 30. He was 30. And his mum and dad did him in the temple too. But at 30, he says, I want to be baptized. And John the Baptist sees him and goes, oh, no, 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 I'm not worthy. I can't even undo your shit. No, no, no. Jesus says, Johnny, do it. It's the right thing to do. <laughs> and you think about this. Who was he lining up with? Who was John the Baptist preaching to? Adulterers, thieves, murderers, scoundrels, people that weren't popular in synagogues or the temple. They're lined up there and say, so Jesus, the pure, innocent son of God, an adulterer in front of him, a thief behind him. He identifies with our sinfulness. He identifies with humanity. He identifies with humanity at its worst. He who was sinless identifies with sinful humanity and he gets baptised in water and he says, do it because it's the right thing to do. And I say to people, you're telling me you don't want to get baptised in water. Well, who's the boss, you or Jesus? Don't argue with me. Go and argue with him. He always wins the arguments. You see, if we're Christ-centred, we will lift him up. And we will draw people to him to be obedient to him and to put their trust in him. Not to be obedient to us and put their trust in us. That's what cult leaders do. Cult leaders lift themselves up and produce their own disciples. We produce disciples of Jesus. And part of that is that they be loyal to their leaders, but there's only one Lord and Master. His name is Jesus Christ. And so Grace Bible Church, I'm thankful for it and you should be grateful for it because it's biblically grounded and it is Christ-centered. 
Hallelujah. And thirdly, it's spirit-led. You see, Jesus went back to heaven. The eternal Son, eternal Father, Son, Holy Spirit, perfect fellowship, relationship in heaven. The Father conceives the idea to save humanity because he loves us. The Son volunteers and says, I'll go, Dad. And he came and forever he will look like a 33-year-old Palestinian Jew. That's the price that God had paid. And he'll have a physical body. You'll be able to touch it. But he can dematerialize and materialize. He can eat and he can drink and he can breathe, but he doesn't have to. It's a glorified body. The body of Jesus post-resurrection, amazing body. But when you look at him, he's not a white man. He's not a black man. He's actually more like a colored man. He's more like a colored man, swarthy skin. And when you look at him, you go, oh, he's not very good looking. You'll be shocked because his face has been torn apart. He's got hot, they, they, they've got great holes in his, they beat him. They stuck things on his head and, and beat him and stuck a, a hole in his wrist and a great big gash here. And you look at his chest and his back and it's ripped open. It's still gonna be looking like that to remind us forever the price the Godhead paid to save you, to save me. So he is in heaven. He can't come back to earth until the right time. So what has he done? He sends the Holy Spirit to represent him. But what is he doing in heaven now? Is he going, oh, look, I'm just, I'm just waiting. I'm twiddling my thumbs and waiting until the Father says I can come back. He is working. He is working as hard for you as he worked on the cross. What he accomplished on the cross for you was to save you. But now in heaven, he is working for you. He is praying for you right now. And he can pray for you and another 100 million people at the same time. He is our intercessor. He is our mediator. He is our advocate. Hey, if you have sinned, and this week, if you have sinned, listen, my brothers and sisters, it's not impossible for a Christian to sin. It is possible for a Christian not to sin, you get that? It's not impossible for a Christian to sin. We don't believe in sinless perfection. We believe in Christian perfection, that we're getting better, but we are not sinless yet until our bodies are recreated when Christ returns. So if you have sinned, 1 John chapter one up to chapter two says we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. An advocate's our defense attorney. You go to the court and, and, and you don't have to be judged by the father because you go through the defense attorney and he says, oh, you, you've confessed your sin. Okay, if, you, if you've confessed your sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. For we have one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, he is our advocate. And so if, if you've sinned this week, you come to him the blood of Christ was shed 2,000 years ago and it covers your sin, past, present, and future. And on the basis of humility, and you say, Lord, I have sinned, I'm really sorry, 
Forgive me. He will forgive you. But then you pray, help me, Lord, through the Holy Spirit to overcome that sinful pattern that may be there. And so we have Jesus in heaven who's praying for us. We have Jesus in heaven who's interceding for us. He's our advocate and he's our high priest. And, and you read, you read uh, Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4 and it says you come to the Father through Jesus, our high priest, to receive mercy and grace in your time of need. And if you have needs here today, do not leave without coming to the throne of grace and receiving the mercy and grace and healing and power and provision that you need. Can you say amen to that? Yeah. This, is what, this is who Jesus is. And so he's in heaven and he wants... And so the person who now outworks it here on earth is his spirit. He himself can't be here, but he sends the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is just like him. And we're much better off having the Holy Spirit now than having Jesus physically with us. Because if Jesus was physically with us, he could be here at Grace Bible Church, but he couldn't be at the Christian Family Center. He couldn't be anywhere else in the world. But now Jesus can be anywhere and everywhere through the Holy Spirit. We're much better off. We're much better off. And so this church is a spirit-led church, a spirit-filled church. It relies upon the Holy Spirit. And if you take the history of Grace Bible Church and take the history of the Christian Family Centre, we're 40 years, you're 35 years, and you take out, write up the history and you will see the person and work of the Holy Spirit doing supernatural, miraculous things, amazing things. You wouldn't have this church here. You wouldn't have all the amazing things that have taken place without the person and work of the Holy Spirit giving visions and dreams and imparting gifts and supernatural guidance and direction. You try and rewrite the book of Acts or read the book of Acts and rub out every bit that mentions the Holy Spirit and supernatural phenomena and, and miracles. It would be a very dry book. It would be a boring history book. But with it, it's alive because there's somebody walking with them. It's not Jesus, it's the Holy Spirit. And there's supernatural guidance and direction and visions and dreams and gifts and power that operates and amazing things, healings, deliverances, new churches planted, the life of God, prophecies and and amazing encounters and God's timing working both ways. Like you take Philip, you know, he's, he's out there in Samaria, Acts chapter eight, ministering to a stack of people and the Holy Spirit says, hey, go to the backside of the desert. He goes to the desert, there's no one there. And then he happens to see this, this Ethiopian eunuch who just happened to be reading Isaiah 53. God was working both ends. The man got saved, he goes back and, and tells Queen Kandasi and tradition tells us the whole nation of Ethiopia became a Christ, Christian nation, one of the first Christian nations. So Acts chapter eight, you see supernatural, God working both ends, working through Philip there in Sikar in Samaria, and then in the backside of the desert. And so folks, your church here has all the marks that it's a spirit-led church and uh, miracles are happening and we want all the gifts of the spirit and all the fruit of the spirit to operate through us. We don't want just one gift and two gifts. We want all nine gifts of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 7 to 11, working through us. We want all the fruit. 
the fruit of the Holy Spirit to produce the character of Jesus in us. We want the charisma of Jesus flowing through us in gifts, but we want the character of Jesus being built into us through fruits. And I would encourage you, use your spiritual prayer language every day. Use it. Use it. If God has blessed you with this ability to worship him in a brand new prayer language, use it. Use it and, and, and call out to him and start interceding and you will see amazing things start to happen. When, when, you know, when I was in Bible college, I asked the question, because we're, we're Pentecostal, and I said, I said to the teacher, I said, sir, how come Jesus didn't speak in tongues? You ever thought about that one? We speak in tongues, he doesn't speak in tongues. And the teacher said, very simple, son. He goes, he didn't need to speak in tongues. Eh? Why didn't he need to speak in tongues? Because his tongue was perfectly in control. His tongue, unlike your tongue, was in perfect control. He never sinned by misusing his tongue. How many of you sinned this week misusing your tongue? At least four times. Hey, the number one organ in our bodies that gives us the biggest trouble is our tongue. Isn't that right? I tell you. Jesus didn't need to speak in tongues because his tongue was always under perfect control because he had perfect control. He had never sinned. We are out of control. We're born in sin. We live in sin. And this thing causes us trouble. And isn't it interesting that God, the first sign of the outpouring of the Spirit was the taming of the tongue. The taming of the tongue. And you link that in with the final fruit of the Spirit, which is self-control. So when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, we'll start love, joy, peace. Hey, let's start with self-control first. Because I reckon you need more of self-control than love. That's my hunch. We're all out of control. Who, we need to come under His control. So when I speak in tongues, I am yielding control of what I'm saying to him to pray a beautiful, perfect prayer through me. Notice I said we yield control of what we say. Speaking in tongues is not losing control of your mind. That's a cult. That's weirdo stuff. Where a person gets into a trance, in like a voodoo trance, and they're doing, and they're, they, they don't even remember. No, 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 no. I can be driving my car and speaking in tongues. I'm yielding control of what I am speaking. I never lose control of my mind. I worship God with my mind like I worship God with my heart. You understand? Big difference. Big difference. And so when I yield control of what I'm speaking, and I say, Lord, take control of this unruly member, you know what I'm really saying is, Lord, take control of every part of my being. If you need self-control built into your system, take 10 minutes a day and pray in the spirit and say, Lord, I need your self-control. Even as you're controlling my tongue as I'm worshiping you and interceding for others, I need self-control in that area that's out of control. It might be swearing. It might be jealousy. It might be envy. It might be lust. It might be 
another area of your life that you know you're just not in control. Desire comes and you act upon it. You need the control of the Holy Spirit in you and he can build self-control. So when you speak in tongues as you're yielding control of what you're saying, then call out to him, say, Lord, in that area, I need that bit of love, that joy, that self-control, that kindness, that goodness, and you will change. You do that for five or six weeks, 10 minutes a day, I guarantee it. You, you pray 10 minutes a day and you will develop a new habit pattern. Okay, that's how habit patterns break. The old will break, the new will come. You need the, the character of Jesus control, self-control in you. And so that's what the Holy Spirit does. We are a Pentecostal church. We believe in the person and work of the Holy Spirit, not as a theory, but he actually lives in our bodies and changes us to become more like Jesus and gives us gifts to be able to win our lost world to him. So this church is biblically grounded, it's Christ-centered, it's spirit-led, it's people-loving. And I'm grateful that you are a great people-loving church. You can sense it when you walk in here. When the lady got up and, 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 and introduced, and there she is in the front there, if I was a new person, I would say, I love you. I'm going to join this church because you, I could see love in your heart. You were welcoming, you were accepting. You weren't business-like saying, well, this is Grace Bible Church. We're the biggest church in town. If you like us, okay. If you don't like us, stiff cheese. Find another church. Imagine if she said that. No, 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 no. Pastor Mosa, everyone, the song leader, there's love in the house. There's love in the house. And I tell you, a New Testament church has got to be people loving, to love all people, to love the stranger, to love your neighbor. And uh, look at this scripture, what Paul says, let no debt remain outstanding. How's this? No debt, except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. When love is flowing, I tell you, like, it's like honey. You pour honey down, ants will come. Okay, you, you poor honey ants. I don't know where they come from. They just come. You might say, shoo away. Yeah, get rid of those ants. And you think, and you've still got some honey there? There'll be another bunch of ants that will come this way. And, that, and these, these ants are everywhere. People want love. Love is the honey of life. And out there, it's a cruel world. There's so much unkindness, discourtesy, lack of love, broken people, dysfunctional homes. We were talking to the taxi driver who took us to the airport in, Sowe in uh, South Africa, in, in Cape Town, and he just shared with us. And I said, I said, How? I said what's happening with the, the young men and violence? Why is this? And he just, just shared, he goes, look, he goes, I think, he goes, I think it's a symptom of broken, broken families. Um, I mean, many communities are poor. Because you're poor doesn't mean you become a criminal. Most poor people live righteous lives and good lives. If you've got a good mum and a good dad and they teach you good morals, good ethics, sometimes kids kick against that, but if there's good love in the family and there's, you know, the children don't have to be taught what's right and wrong, they see it in how their mummy and daddy behave to know what's right and wrong. And this taxi driver says, look, he goes, I just think it's, it's a symptom 
of broken homes and you've got all these poor women, these young girls who are getting pregnant and the men just take off and they're raising these children on their own. They don't know how to discipline them and so they just get into bad company and he goes, it's just terrible. And he just, just his heart was saying, you know, we've got dysfunctional families, broken people and uh, the church has got to be the place. Imagine if every man here, this is a, imagine if every man here over this next week, you could find a young boy who doesn't have a daddy in your community, in your neighborhood. Let's say in the next month, maybe a week's too early, let's say in the next month, you found a young boy that doesn't have a daddy, just got a mum, she's got her hands full. Women raising kids on that, they've got their hands. I feel great sympathy for them. And maybe you just take him out with mother's permission, go and see a movie or take him to McDonald's, some of their healthy, healthy food, McDonald's. <laughs> Even just one hour, and you look into that boy's eyes and you tell him, you are valuable. You are valuable. You are valuable to me. To say, you are valuable to me. You have worth, you have dignity. And the thing is, you may say it, but the fact that you've spent, you know, 20, 30 rand on the boy, he'll never forget that. It's just practical. Um, it's like there's so many dysfunctional families. Um, my wife came from a dysfunctional family. I said to her, would you like to come up and share it? She goes, no, you share it. But her father used to be a violent man. I mean, really violent to the point where he should have been put in jail. And one time he beat Kathy up as a little girl that she, her face was blackened. He used his shoe just on her face and uh, she had to stay away from school for three, three or four weeks. She was so beaten. Um, her younger sister, he sexually abused her from when she was six years of age till she was 12. Imagine that, a, a, a man having sex with a child. Six years, his daughter. Ugh, I, I just... You can't take it in, you can't take it in. Jesus. Terrible violence, terrible abuse. And um, so when Kathy married me, I come from the exact opposite family of origin. I never saw my mum and dad fight. They loved each other. The only thing I feel about my parents now, you know when I think about them, is unconditional love, acceptance. My daddy gave me his wedding ring just before he died and I've never taken it off. My mother gave me her cross, and I've never, I've kept it. And so my, my parents, it's just, just beautiful, like beautiful people, Greek people who love their children. And I just felt unconditional love and acceptance. Kathy never felt that. When she was 11 or 12, to her, her dad died. So when he actually died 20, 30 years later, there were no tears because she did all her crying when she was 11 or 12. So she was very dysfunctional. And she shares this in one of my books that I've written. She shares her story. And one of the things that happened as a 22-year-old, we're married in a new church. The two men at the door at the church, two older men, one was a dentist and the other was, a, I don't know what he was. I called one the silver fox. He had white hair like me. And, uh, and the other one, and they're at the door and every person that would come in, they'd shake their hand and they'd give people hugs as well. And uh, so every time Kathy would come in, these two beautiful older men would give her a hug. 
and they were the same age as her father, okay? And just a, a non-sexual hug, you know, appropriate hug, like that. Kathy said years ago, years ago, she said to me, those two men did more to heal my soul than all your preaching. Now, my preaching helped her too, but you see, to have two beautiful old men who were just prepared just to love a young, they did not know what was happening to her. I didn't fully know. I didn't really understand. So you don't know the power of a hug. You don't know the power of just looking into someone's eyes and just telling them, you're, you're beautiful, you're wonderful, you're fantastic. And uh, I'd like to take you out for a cup of coffee and stuff. So, so love has got to flow. And I think the only answer for a broken society and dysfunctional families is men and women loving the, those that are out there and reaching out to them. Seriously. And you are doing this. Some of your programs, like your hampers, we've got hampers going too right now, this week. Same thing. I can't believe it. We got hampers, you got hampers. Maybe we, we, we got the idea. So we got hampers. And all our people are taking these hampers, we call them hampers of hope, and they take them to the poor. And they, just, and, and they, and, and they look into their eyes and, and bless them. It's, it's just wonderful. And one out of every 10 Saturdays, we call one in 10. The one in 10 program is the men and women who are very practical. They work with the local government and find poor people or disabled people whose grass has grown too long or whose house is very dirty, and they'll spend the Saturday maybe with three or four houses, and they'll clean them up. So the men and women, they come for breakfast at the church, then, then they have the tools and they, where they go. So, every, so we tithe every 10th Saturday into the community. And you know what? The local government love us. They love us. They think we're fantastic. What is that? It's because the love of God in the heart of people to want to do good and kindness to their community. And if you do that, this is the honey that the society needs. A New Testament church is people loving. It is, as I bring this to, to a conclusion, the, other the two final things are it's forward moving. It's forward moving. A church can't be static or stationary or go backwards. A church must always be moving forwards, forwards in faith and forwards in obedience. Matthew 28, notice the scripture. Therefore, go <laughs> and make disciples of all nations. Now, this is not political nations. These are ethnic groups. These are people groups. In Papua New Guinea, where I go, there are 750 to 800 ethnic groups that speak their own languages. It's the largest in the world. One political nation with 800 people groups. And before Europeans went there and Christianized the place, is they were killing each other. Wars, tribal wars. Even now there's tribal wars. They have a tribal war and I mean there might be 150 people killed over a pig or something or over, I don't know what it is. They just, it's like, it's, so, so it's only the gospel that has awakened these people. Europeans only reached central Papua New Guinea in 1932. One million people stuck in the highlands and the Australian police officers found it. And we had it, as a, we had it as, as a United Nations trustee for something like 20 years before him. We never knew there were a million people up in the mountains 
These, are, these people speak different languages and so we presented the gospel to them and, uh, and, and different people groups and, and they've come to Christ, so many of them. And now the next generation of young kids, they're not following their parents and we're re-Christianizing them. Got to reach the kids with the gospel. But you see, he says, go into all the world and make disciples of all the people groups. But notice the word go. Think about the word go. Let's do a study on the word go. First of all, have you noticed that it's two thirds of the name of God? Hey, that must be pretty important. Two thirds of God's name is go. And then you think go, you, it, it's such a positive word. It's such an action oriented word. There's no wiggle room. You can't go and then stop. You can't say, well, I'll just rest. No, no, no rest, no stop, go. It's actually, it means forward moving. Jesus says a New Testament church must be forward moving in faith and obedience. The father of faith was Abraham. The apostle Paul uses him as an example in, in Romans 4. The father of all who would believe. But I call him Mr. Obedience. Because, I mean, he's an amazing guy. As soon as God speaks, he says, straight away, he gets up and does it. Early the next morning, up he goes. Like, when the Lord speaks to me, I want to think about it for a few days, a few weeks. But Abraham, yes, Lord. And so he obeys even before he knows what the outcome's going to be. See, you're not obedient to Jesus until you've made up your mind to obey him before he speaks. If you're saying, well, you speak, Lord, and I'll consider it. I'll discuss it with my mind and whether I will. No, 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 that's, that's, not, that's not the kingdom of God. We are to obey even before he speaks. That's what lordship is. So here he says, go. Where? The whole world. But does that mean the physical? It means wherever there are people, wherever there are people who don't hear the message, who have never heard the message. So Papua New Guinea, we reached that one generation, but that was two million people. Now there are eight million people and most of the young people are pagans and they've gone back into warfare. We've got to re-present the gospel to them. Your new generation here, men and women who are under 30 years of age, okay, who are under 30 years of age, really have no idea of what the apartheid system was like. They've got no idea. They can read about it in school, but it's better felt than telt. Just talk, it's the fear that people had was, was palpable. The abuse that people experienced was terrifying. The it, was, it was one of the most ugly things the world's ever seen. How it developed. We went to Robben Island and, and saw Mandela's cell. I mean, like, there's a red bucket for his toiletry, just a red bucket for 18 years. I mean, like, the newspapers, the preachers would come and preach and they'd leave their newspapers so the prisoners could grab the newspapers and tear them up and read. They had something to read. And Nelson, his book that he wrote, he used to hide it under the tree until they found it. <laughs> I mean, like, ah, a beautiful intellectual political prisoner was abused. But the young people don't really understand that because they didn't live through it. So therefore, as churches, Grace Bible Church has got to somehow 
accept that. And so how the heck are we going to reach our young people, help them to understand our past, to appreciate and have empathy with where we've come from so that we can create a better future? And so, so I think, you know, you've got to adapt. You've got to adapt. The world has changed. Seriously. The world has changed. Radically changed. And so, you know, it's like... Uh, um, so if we're going to be culturally relevant, contemporary, reaching modern men and women, we must never change the basics. The Bible is our guiding compass. Jesus is our true north. The Holy Spirit is the one we rely upon. We depend upon him. We are just to love people and help people. But how we do it, we, in moving forward in obedience and faith, we've got to be relevant with where our world is at. And the world is changing radically. You've got to come to grips with the internet and the, the, the different forms. And you're doing that. The way you're using modern technology is great. It's you're way ahead of other churches. That means you're thinking ahead. You're trusting him to reach more people. And you've got to be outward focused. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. This is the dyna, dynamic of God comes on you and you will be my witnesses. Now notice this, in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then Samaria, then the ends of the earth. Is that what it says? Look at that scripture, Acts 1.8. I think I've got it up there. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria, then to the ends of the earth. I've tricked you, I've thrown some poison to the meat, I've changed one word from and to then. You see, if I change that word to then, I say, no, 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 we first of all, we reach Soweto. When every person in Soweto has been reached, then I might consider larger Joburg. Then when we reach all of Joburg, then maybe other provinces in South Africa. No, no, he doesn't say that. At the same time, at the same time as you're reaching locally, you've got to be thinking of lost people all over the world. This is what a radic church is. In missiological terms, a church or, or, or a denomination that is radic will last for generations. But if they become centric where it's focusing about me, oh, it's Soweto that's more important. It's my neighborhood and my needs. I've had people say to me, Pastor Bill, why are we giving so much money to Papua New Guinea? We have needs, we need a new PA system. Or we need, why are we giving so much money overseas? How come we're planting another church? Don't you think we should be growing our home church more? And I'll get these centric thinking, restricting. And, 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 and it's restricting and it's, it's actually, if I give into it and give in leadership to centric thinking people, I'm dooming the church to be a church of just one generation. Here it says, and. So when I travel here, so when I'm, as I'm traveling here, my church is with me. When I'm in Papua New Guinea, my church is with me. Not everyone can come with me, but they come with me in their thoughts. They come with me in their prayers. They come with me in their giving. I have men right now in, our, in, our, in my office. They meet early morning, six something to 7.30 in the morning, and they pray for me. They have my itinerary. They can't travel. 
Some of them are poor, but they travel in their minds. I tell them where I'll be next week in Swaziland and how many people I'll be speaking to and all that stuff. So you see, I'm teaching them to be radic. And the day that the church becomes centric is the day that it's doomed. And why would the Holy Spirit continue to work in a church if it doesn't stay rooted in scripture, if it doesn't center itself on Jesus, if it doesn't depend on the spirit, if it's not loving people, if it's not forward moving and outreach focused. Folks, this is who you are. I'm not, I'm not saying something new that's outside. This is who you are. I'm reinforcing something that is in a reality with you. But what I'm saying, if you're new to the church here, this is your destiny, this is your future. It's about being a New Testament church and we are so grateful to God for raising up Grace Bible Church and now there are 60 churches and may there be 600, maybe there become 6,000. Why not in the years to come, hallelujah. Let's stand together church, let's stand. As we come to a time of prayer and challenge and ministry. Thank you, Jesus. If you are here today, it might be your very first time, I don't know. Or maybe you've been coming for a few weeks. But you haven't yet sealed the deal with Jesus. You're here because you respect him. You're here because you sense him drawing you. But as yet, you haven't crossed the line of faith personally, where you've said, Jesus Christ, you're not just the savior of the world as we celebrate this Christmas, but I want you to be my personal savior. Lord Jesus, I, I wanna place my trust in you to save me from my sins. If you're still feeling guilt and fear and shame, and uncertainty about your future, that you're not assured that you have eternal life and that if you died tonight, you don't know where you would be. And that's a sure evidence that you don't have the assurance of salvation. And you can be absolutely assured that God the Father will accept you on the basis of you putting your trust in Jesus who died for you, who rose for you, who lives for you. Paul says if you believe in your heart, that God has raised him from the dead and you confess him and affirm him to be Lord and master, you will be saved. A divine operation will occur. You'll be born from above, a supernatural process. God the Holy Spirit will come into your heart and you will have the assurance that you are a Christian, you're born again. Not Christian because of tradition or because of mum and dad or because of even a church upbringing, but you're born again you become a child of God. God's got no grandchildren, only children. They need to be born again. They need to be born into his kingdom and, and to acknowledge that, that he, he has to become the master of their hearts, the governor of their lives. If you haven't made that decision to accept Jesus Christ, I would love to pray with you, love to pray with you and to be like a spiritual midwife to help you. Just to say, to say a prayer, Jesus, to come into my life. I did it when I was 17 years of age. I'm 64 now, and I have never regretted it. And the Lord has never done me any wrong. He's only blessed me and my life with so many good things. 
He is the saviour of the world and he wants to become your personal saviour from sin. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here standing. I pray for those who are guests who are visiting and who are making a decision today to accept Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we give them an opportunity to respond and step forward and to be prayed for, give them the courage to step out and to put their trust in Jesus and turning from themselves and their self-sufficiency that they would come and confess their sins and say, I now want to become a Christian. I, I want forgiveness and to experience the grace of Jesus, the acceptance of the Father, the salvation of God. I pray, move upon their hearts, Holy Spirit, draw them to the foot of the cross that they would believe. Amen. As we sing this song, I want to invite you, if you have not made that decision for Jesus, I would love just to shake your hand. I'll come down here. I'd love you to come and line up here and uh, let me be your spiritual midwife today. Pray with you and uh, give your lives over to him. Would you like just to slip out of your seats as the, as the musicians start singing? Slip out of your seats and come and line up here. And as you come, just say, Lord, save me today. Save me. Just in your act of obedience, faith, step out of your seat. Just come and, and just... Call out to him. Come now. Come and line up here. You come now.